Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily and today we have Daryl Lyons with us. He's an author, a personal finance expert and an ambitious entrepreneur. Daryl knows what it means to run a business and live in the middle class. Now he's ready to help us achieve the dream of financial freedom so we can enjoy life. Daryl San Antonio, Texas company, Pax Financial Group, is an Inc. 5000 fastest growing company and a best place to work. His work and his passion have allowed Daryl to also give back to his community earning him the praise of the likes of Dave Ramsey and San Antonio Mayor Julian Castro. Darrell also helped establish a Eurasia Award called the David Robinson Award that recognizes an athlete in Eurasia who shows character and athletic excellence. His latest mission is to help redefine retirement, where we no longer think of retiring, but rather pivot into the next chapter of life with purpose. This idea is rooted in thousands of one-on-one conversations with people about money and a relatively new study called behavioral finance. Welcome, Daryl Lyons. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. It's a beautiful day in San Antonio, Texas. It's raining here in New York. It's been raining for days. (laughs) So I'm jealous. It moved out. Well, we'll see. <laughs> We're so happy to have you on our podcast. And as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. So, are you ready to pour into our listeners? Yeah, wonderful. I can't wait. I'm excited. So, Daryl, can you tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now? Yeah. So, I, you know, grew up in a couple of small towns around San Antonio, Texas. And my senior year, we lived in a little trailer park on Highway 90. And I just really wanted to know about money. I was really curious. How do people have houses without wheels? And mm-hmm. I went to college, got a couple degrees and worked at a bank, got a degree in finance, another one in accounting, and just really honed in on my curiosity about money and uh, learning about it and learning how it makes a difference in people's lives and how it can destroy people's lives. And so I just really had this curiosity. I became a rookie of the year for a Fortune 100 company and then partner of the year. And it sounds great, but I just fumbled and worked hard and tried to figure things out. Then I started our own firm, and this was 12 years ago, called Pax Financial Group in San Antonio, Texas. We're a registered investment advisory firm, and we serve middle America, and we have 20 employees, and we made the Inc. 5000 list this last couple of years, so we continue to try to do the right things and try to learn how to navigate these markets. There's so much complexity in the financial world, but it really gets me up at night. I don't feel like I'm working because I'm loving it so much. I love to hear that because it really speaks to your passion. Now, that was a really quick rise to a position. Well, you know, it was... uh, It sounded like that. Yeah, it did, right? So I started in this industry in 1999. Mm -hmm. And when I first got in the industry, I was trying to learn how to just tie a tie and how to communicate. 
And so I got a sales job where I was selling financial products. And I was okay with that because it was the tuition to learn how to be a professional. But yeah, I started becoming uh, disenchanted with some of the conflicts of interest. And, and that's why I was determined to start my own business. I also wanted to start my own business because when I was really little, I saw my dad cry only a couple times. And one of them was when he lost his job and it affected our family very much. And this was in the 1980s. There was an SNL crisis and oil and gas issues here in South Texas. And I just thought when I was real little that I could never work for somebody because I never want to get fired. And uh, it kind of scared me. So when I had an opportunity to disengage from the large financial services firms, to start my own company, I really ran with it because it was something that was just placed in my heart. And being in the money business and just being curious about it, it felt like a calling. Thank you for sharing that. Now, how would you describe your leadership style? And I alluded to this, and I really am curious about people. I think everyone has a unique life story, and this curiosity leads to caring mm -hmm. and empathy. And I don't think you'll ever hear me say, I don't like somebody. Those are just words that just don't make sense to me. Um, you know, I don't like that person. I may not like what that person's doing or how that person's behaving or even what that person believes in, I might not like. But it's not that I don't like that person. I don't really understand that person's story. I think what happens is when you have a genuine curiosity of people, and you get to know them, then you want to be a part of their success in life in whatever direction that might be. And so uh, it starts with a sincere curiosity. This can absolutely work against you, though, in leadership because there's many times where I've interviewed people and I was curious about them and I realized that they had some serious flaws. But the idea was, okay, I'm going to bring them on board onto my team and I'm going to fix their stuff, right? Mm. And, and that doesn't really work. So what I had to do because of the lack of skill set I had in hiring, I actually have my team now hire for me because I'm just not good at it because I will look right past your flaws and say, man, you've got something special and your flaws we can fix here. And that doesn't work good for hiring. <laughs> uh, but I do have good people that look out for me and they hire now for me. But that sincere, authentic curiosity is really the way I lead. You know, I love that because what it says is that you do value people. And it sounds like you're in touch with who you are. Like you understand that although that is a great way to be as a leader. You still need people to speak into your life. I really do need people. A quick story on that. I was on a board uh, where we were helping redevelop part of the city. And this lady, she was really a nemesis to a lot of people. She communicated very abruptly and condescending and mm -hmm. people avoided her. Not only people, but like mayor, city council. This was a big time board. And on that board, I go, man, something's wrong with her. So there's an age gap. So I don't know, she was in her 70s and I was in my mid-20s. And I just invited her to uh, Freddie's Frozen Custard. And we were just talking. And I realized that, you know, when her husband died, she had just this frustration and pain of her identity and who she was. And it was really difficult. And so she was just dealing with this very painful life journey and expressing it through frustration in other people's lives. So I became chairman of that board and I had to make very difficult decisions, including not putting her in a leadership role. I actually had to tell her in front of everyone that I was not going to elect her to be vice chairman of this very important role. And of course she was hurt, but I would tell you that she did not attack me publicly for my leadership decision because I had invested in her and understood her. So mm -hmm. yes, she was hurt, 
but she could have gone to the press and made a big deal. And, you know, I did nothing wrong, but she could have really made a big deal out of this. And, and she didn't. And I believe she didn't because I took the time to just understand her story. I empathize with her. I care for her. I still had to make the right decision for the betterment of the organization. But I think the consequences of that decision were minimized because I invested in her life a little bit. I'm so moved by who you are and what you've done. I also read somewhere that you were a nominee for the John Maxwell Leadership Award. Um, How cool is that? Yeah, That's it's like really the Emmys or the Grammys in leadership. It really is. And this sweet lady nominated me. And, you know, John Maxwell's certainly I've read as many books as I can get my hands on, encouraged by what he's done. You know, there's more than a handful of people that have influenced me, including John Maxwell. And of course, I have a great relationship with Dave Ramsey. He's been a great role model for me for many years. And, and Max Lucado. So John Maxwell put on a short list of people that have been really uh, important in my life. Well, thank you. Now, can you tell us which quote or quotes about leadership speak to you and why? The one that makes the most sense to me is leadership is about translating a vision into reality. And I think every word in that phrase is worthy of unpacking. First of all, if you can't create a vision, that's problematic for mm -hmm. a leader. Now, it's hard to create a vision. Like you just don't want to wake up and say, okay, I've got a vision. But a vision is a byproduct of a desire to improve the lives of you and the other people around you. And so it really starts with, I want things to get better. I'm not happy here. How can we get better? How can we improve? And then you start uh, talking with other people and uh, thinking about the problem. Sometimes you lay on the pillow and, at night and you say, man, this is a problem. How can I fix it? And so you start kind of just wrestling with this and it, this mental exercise of, I don't want to be here. How do I get there? And it really is a cool little thing that happens. And what you're doing is you're creating a vision. And then you articulate that vision to the people that are following you in whatever capacity that is. And the beautiful thing is, is that you articulate it. But here's where the rubber meets the road is that you've then got to execute. And that means translating the vision into reality. A leader's responsibility is to be the chief reminding officer to constantly tell people, this is where we're going. This is where we're going. Hey, don't give up. Let's keep going. Mm -hmm. Keep pushing through. Maybe adjust course just a little bit, but doing all the hard work that makes sure that we get to the finish line. Because so many leaders will have a vision and maybe even it's a clunky vision, articulate it. But when they hit some rough patches, they stop and they don't go any further. And so the idea is, is that for a good leader to become a great leader, they got to take this vision and all the clunkiness, remind people, encourage and inspire, and then push through to the very end. And that's what it takes to be a great leader. Chief reminding officer. I love that. It's coaching, right? It's coaching the people in your team. And you're absolutely right. Because when we have that vision and we push so hard and sometimes it doesn't work, a lot of people stop. And they take down the whole vision as opposed to the plan towards the vision. Oh, yeah, I see it all the time. There, I will tell you, there's been a couple times where I've had to say, okay, I think that this is not going to work. And I've done that where I say, okay, I look, I, we've gotten to the point where I realize that the data that I input into my vision casting is not going to work out the way I had hoped. But I'll tell you what, for me, that takes a long time to get there. But that happened when we were setting up uh, these large group retirement accounts for businesses. And I spent probably four or five years really investing in building out that model for our organization the way I envisioned it. My desire was to have a very, very low cost platform 
for small businesses to be able to offer retirement accounts to their employees because there's a huge gap in the marketplace. And I can talk about legislative issues there, but what the main point is, is that for four years, I tried my best and I got to the point saying, okay, it really isn't economically feasible to do this. We still offer it to small businesses, but we couldn't price it the way I had hoped. After four years of trying, I finally said, okay, well, we, we just can't do this. That's hard for me to do, but I will give it my best effort to complete the vision if all possible. Mm. And that takes humility and leadership because when you don't see it working, it's humbling to oh say, okay, we failed here or let's adjust our sales. Let's do something different. That's important. So thank you for sharing that. Now, Daryl, what type of leader are you inspired by and why? I really love to hear about leaders that are just not good. You know, we've got to, we've got to. <laughs> Wait, hold up. That's a first. Yeah. What I mean by that is I love hearing about the leader that shouldn't have been a leader, that as a result of circumstances and timing, people just needed somebody to step up and that person and all their lack of skill became the leader. You know, if you go back to the Old Testament, you see a guy like Moses who wasn't mm-hmm. supposed to be a leader. He ended up becoming a leader. Frankly, George Washington, funny thing about George Washington is, you know, he didn't have any kids. So they thought, well, this guy couldn't be a king. So it's a safe bet because we don't want any more kings. So let's pick this guy. And, you know, he had a lot of flaws and insecurities. Julius Caesar, you know, he was messed up guy, but, you know, he had a vision of where he wanted to go. Andrew Jackson, he wanted Florida. I go on and on on leaders. I studied, I nerd out on this stuff. You know, my favorite woman is not in the past, but in the present. And that's Brene Brown. Mm. Brene Brown, and she is so graceful in all of her fumbling of life. I had a chance to meet her at the Inc. 5000 conference mm. and asked her about how she handled the hurricane when Hurricane Harvey came into her backyard in Houston, where she lives, and how she applied leadership skills in the midst of that. And I got to tell you. That was I, a great question, by the way. Yeah. And I got to tell you, I see somebody that was just as normal as you and me trying to help people and trying to figure things out as she goes. That's the kind of leader I like. I just like a leader that's just like you and me. One that's not the picture that you have of a leader and the big broad shoulders, white male. I love the people that fumble, bumble, that make mistakes that are human. And then I like to see somehow in all the midst of the mess, they rise to the top, accomplish great things on a mission. And that could be uh, when I look at history, you know, the, the conquering of location, but in many ways they change people's lives. And in the midst of their inability to do things in a certain way that we might think of in leadership, like speaking or being brave, they still accomplish it. And I always look for common themes. Like I thought all leaders were supposed to be good communicators. And I find that not all of them are. And then some people told me all leaders are charismatic and not all of them are. And, yeah. and and, and I learned that leadership is just authenticity and caring and working hard in many times. And that's what I love about leadership. So I look for normal people in leadership. Thank you. And yeah, Brene Brown, she's one of my favorite authors and I love her stories. And also she's had a TED Talk, the one on vulnerability, which is really popular and speaks to courage. She's so good. Yeah. yeah. I'm a big fan of Brene Brown. All right. Maybe we'll have her on our podcast. Yeah. So, Daryl, what's the best advice you've ever received? This is just for me personally. It probably doesn't apply to everyone, but about seven years ago, it was all in a matter of a few weeks that my daughter, she was just three at the time, she severed her finger. 
Oh, wow. And then my wife had a miscarriage. Mm. I was having some real issues with business. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of stuff going on in our lives, a lot of pressure, a lot of stress, and uh, really overwhelmed as a young dad and really couldn't handle the pressure. i tell you what, it was at that point, I made a commitment to trust God. And I had a guy that told me, he came alongside of me and he goes, are you done yet? And I said, what do you mean? He said, are you done living a life you were never meant to live. And I go, what does that mean? And he started to unpack some of the Bible with, and I just bought everything that Jesus sold. And at that point, that was the best advice I'd received because I'd spent so much time of my life just worrying about my future. And at that point, I really just translated that worry into trust. And that's been refreshing for me. We do need to be reminded of that, that we're not in control. So thank you so much for that. Now, Daryl, what does it mean to you to have a good team? And how do you build and sustain one? You know, it's a good question. Our company has been one of the best places to work, according to the San Antonio Business Journal, Mm -hmm. multiple occasions in the city. And one of the things that I alluded to earlier is uh, not trying to save someone. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so obviously, Jim Collins is somebody who I would admire over the years. And he mentions all the time getting the right people on the right seat on the bus. Mm -hmm. That's a key element of building a good team. It's not only building a good team, but keeping a good team. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you a little thing that I do that helps me stay engaged. And it's called GTD. That stands for get to do. And so mm-hmm. every week, and I've done this for years and years and years, is I send an email out to my team and I tell them what I get to do this week. It could be framed as though what I have to do this week, mm-hmm. but I really frame it in a way that I get to do this week, whether it's an obligation or an opportunity. I just want to frame it the right way. And then in that same email, I put my high of the last week and my low of the last week. And it allows me to reflect on my last week because time flies and the the opportunity to reflect doesn't happen very often. So I want to be consistent in my reflection. Now, what my team does in return is they all respond to that email with their own GTD and their own high and their own low. And so every week I get a pulse of where the heart is of my teammates And if they have a low, and this has happened on multiple occasions, I may have cancer, I have a sick child, I can know how to handle their workload during the week. If they have a high, I get to give them a high five and celebrate with them. But it really allows me to have a consistent pulse of the mindset of our organization because I can't assume as a leader that life just stops when they clock in. It doesn't. It stays in their mind and their hearts. And sometimes it doesn't allow them to function at the capacity that I need them to. So this approach of GTD and high and low is the method for me to systematize the way that I have a pulse of what's going on in their lives. I love this. Now, how did you come up with this? I don't know. (laughs) Uh, I've been doing it so long, I don't even think there was a genesis to it. I think there was just It just kind of made it up, honestly. And how many people on your team? We have 20. And so every week, you send this out to 20 people. I do. And you get 20 responses. I do. And you read all 20 of them. And then I respond to all 20. My response is one word. It's like, cool, or, oh, man, or sometimes I just get out of my desk and walk over there. But I always respond to them. Now, those people on your team, I'm sure they have a team of their own or they have people they lead, do they do the same thing? No, I think that if our team got bigger, I might have to divide and conquer on this, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but at 20, I can still handle it. Yeah, you know, because I'm thinking about how 
superintendents can do this with their principals, and then the principals can do this with their assistant principals. And, and so everybody gets fed or touched or connected. I mean, the problem is, is I'll be on high speed mode for a month and I could not even connect with somebody and not know that their kid is sick. And I get frustrated because they're not productive and just not connect the dots. And I just refuse to allow that to happen. The downside is it feels a little impersonal. I'm not not being personal. I'm just systematizing a way for me to stay in constant contact with people. And then I add the personalization throughout the week, of course. You know what? This doesn't occur to me as impersonal. It really is, to me, wise and thoughtful. And I'm sure that even though you've done it for so long, it just meets needs. And so that's important. The other thing I mentioned real quick is they get to know my heart too, Mm because sometimes they think that I'm running like a machine without any problems and Mm -hmm. um, I'm on a pedestal and they get to understand that I have flaws and I just get transparent with them on my lows. Mm. They're just kind of bummed this week, lost a client or I'm bummed this week, my son's sick and they get to walk life with me too. So I think from that perspective, it's also healthy for me as a leader. Yeah, you get to practice that vulnerability. Hey, leaders, stay tuned for the rest of the interview following this brief message. If you haven't downloaded your copy of the Master Leadership Journal, go to masterleadership.org forward slash MLJ to get instant access and begin growing your leadership with questions that have been curated by top level leaders. I've also included some cool extras for you at masterleadership.org forward slash MLJ. Now, Daryl, can you tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it's shaped your life? I know that you touched on some. There's been so many challenges. Of course, you know, not having money growing up, that was a challenge that I didn't realize that would inspire me to be who I am today. You know, when I saw growing up money challenges in a family and how we could have probably gone without money. And my mom had me when she was 16 and my dad was 20. And so they're just trying to figure out life and then trying to figure out work. And I think we could have been absolutely poor and everything would have been fine. We would bounce between middle class and lower class and however you want to classify people. But I think that if I look at how it impacted their relationship, their marriage, and then how they lived out their life, I think seeing how people and families and spouses respond to money challenges inspired me to understand money so that I could help people respond to money challenges differently. Does that make sense? Yes, it sure does. And so when I look back and I think, oh, you know, those were difficult times as a child growing up and dealing with some of that stuff. I always think about it in a much more positive light. Like, man, I had an opportunity to experience that to create an empathy for other people in a way that you just can't teach in academic setting. So I think that, you know, I look back at just the challenges of childhood, you know, like an example I had, I'll never forget a little kid named Keith. And uh, at the time we were playing hacky sack and I didn't have one. And and I said, Hey Keith, can I borrow your hacky sack? And he looked at me and goes, Hey, at least I can afford one. Mm. And you know, you you know, kids are just mean that way, but it pinged me and those types of things, as much as they hurt at the time, they really shape who you are as a person. Now, I think there's one of two ways that we as people can respond. We can mope and say, you know, our dads were bad dads and really just kind of be in a difficult place. And I understand there's a lot of pain. Or we could say, you know what, I'm going to take this mess and I'm going to use it as an opportunity to serve others. And so I think in the climax of all of our stories, we find our purpose. And that's what has happened in my life. As you were talking, I wrote down, mess becomes your message. 
Yeah, that's right. And surely we can certainly create amazing things with what we've gone through. Part of the reason why I do leadership, and it's so important to me, and it's such a passion, is because I was so poorly led as a kid. Mm. And I led myself poorly. I didn't have a role model. I didn't have anybody to look to as far as leadership. And so that is so important because I do see the mess that that can create when you don't have that in your life. So I appreciate um, you sharing. You're welcome. Now, can you tell us about one of your greatest successes? Oh, goodness. This is just kind of cool to me. When I was 28 or 29, I ended up just by sheer luck becoming a chairman for the board. I mentioned this earlier of Brook mm-hmm. City Base, where my responsibility was to transfer a whole part of the city from uh, the Air Force that had occupied that space and had missions there to the private sector. It was kind of being bracked, the base realignment and closure, um, but it was kind of a quasi brack. It had already been bracked. And so the missions were leaving to different areas to Kelly Air Force Base or Wright-Patterson. And so we had to repurpose a lot of the facilities. And because they weren't ADA or they may have had asbestos, some of the buildings could be repurposed and some of them couldn't. But our responsibility as a board that we were appointed by a city council was to identify private business to occupy that space. Because otherwise, this part of the community would have an economic challenges. It was a lower income part of the community. And, and if it saw a vacuum of people and activity, it would certainly suffer. And so we had to find ways to bring in business. So I was asked to chair that board. And the reason I was asked to chair that board is because the chairman before me passed away. And because I understood the finances the best of the board, I was the chair of the finance committee. Mm -hmm. They had asked me to be the chairman, even though I wasn't equipped. So I really leaned on the talent that was there with Don Jakeway and a whole handful of really competent people. But as a result of providing that leadership and providing direction and making sure that we were good stewards of that property and the assets there, the mayor named a park after me. What? Yeah. And so the mayor, Julian Castro, named a park, the Daryl W. Lyons Park. And here's the cool thing. So I have my park grand opening. (laughs) I think that's wonderful. It's nuts. It kind of gets a little cooler here in just a second because I had this park open for me and I have a grand opening. And remember growing up, I had some challenges. And so being from South Texas, I looked for role models. And one of the role models was an NBA basketball star named David Robinson. And so I was trying to model my life around what David was doing. And guess who shows up at the Grand Park opening, but David Robinson. Of course. Of course, right? And my mom tells me just recently, she says, oh, I just want you to know that I was praying for you as a little kid. And, you know, if you knew my mom, she's a praying woman. She said, and God told me that one day you'll have a park named after you. (laughs) And I thought, wow, this is pretty remarkable. So that's just kind of a freaky thing that I could have never orchestrated and never imagined in my entire life that that would happen. That's pretty cool, Daryl. Yeah, that's pretty cool, right? I mean, even now, I think it's kind of cool. Now, do you have a picture of the park you can send us? Uh, Yeah, yeah, I get you a picture for sure. Great. Now, Many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you and what are you learning now? Yeah, I'm a lifelong learner as well. I kind of get stuck on a topic and I just go deep there. Rarely do I get the latest book and digest it and and always kind of just get the 
New York Times bestseller, usually I find something and I just go deep. Like, well, Jim Collins, you know, once I read one of his books, I had to read all of them. And then mm -hmm. presidents, I started reading everything I could about presidents and I couldn't get off that. And there was apologetics, which is an understanding of the truth behind the Bible and the archaeological evidence and, mm -hmm. and all that. So I got on that for a long time. So the last three years, though, I've been on this major kick on behavioral finance. And that's why I wrote my third book about it, because I just really was blown away about this one statistic. This is a really helpful statistic. I mean, when it comes to investment results, only 13% is from you know what stocks we pick or something called asset allocation or timing the market. Only 13% of investment results is from there. The other 87% of investment results is from our decision-making and our behavior. And so it hit me, especially when I had a client that I did everything right for financially. I mean, uh, you know, the investments were right and the uh, insurance was right and all the planning was right, you know, it's the best that right can be, but they got a divorce at age 70. And I thought, well, you know, they can't live off of half of their money now because two grocery bills, two cell phone bills, two property tax bills, it's just not going to last. And I go, I did everything right. and talked to thousands and thousands of people, kneecap to kneecap about their money in very intimate ways. And it just dawned on me that this is not about math. And I've geeked out on math for years. This is about behavior. So I started studying behavior. I got a designation called a behavioral financial advisor. I hired a coach, like an expert in this space to coach me. And then I just read everything I could on this stuff. And I have just really become convinced that there are things that we can do to help us with our money. And we have to just recognize some of those skill sets and deficiencies that we have. That's what I'm on now, and I'm totally nerded out on it. I had to write another book on it because I got so excited about it. But behavioral finance is where I'm at today. So you wrote a book. Tell us about the book and where we could find that. Yeah, it's called 18280. It's everything you need to know about your money from age 18 to age 80. And every year there's a chapter for your age. So for example, if you're 50, you're going to open the book and say, okay, what do I need to be doing at 50? And oh, great. So I don't have to go back to when I'm 18. I don't have to read that whole part. You don't. No, no. <laughs> Unless I have a teenager. Well, that's just it. So if you're 50 and you say, you know what, but what should my 25 year old son be doing? And you go to 25 and then you go, you know what, what should my 75 year old mom be doing? Perfect. And, and, you know, I'll talk about con artists and what to do, what to watch out for there. And so, the behavioral finance plus thousands of conversations I've had with people over the years. It's real practical, really easy to read. And I really believe it's going to be a helpful book to a lot of people to make changes with their money. Because the interesting thing that's happened is in 1975, our savings rate as a country was 17%. And now we're only saving three and a half percent. And we have so much more information than we had in the seventies. Mm -hmm. And it's not information that's going to help us. It's changing our behavior. And so I wanted to write a book that could help people change some of their behavior just a little bit at a time. And this is the best way I could do it. Two places you can go. You can certainly go to amazon.com and get it there. And then you can also go to paxfinancialgroup.com. That's my company. And you, if you hit slash pivot, because that's a concept in the book, pivot. So it's paxfinancialgroup.com slash pivot or amazon.com and you should put in 18280. Perfect. Now let's talk about that pivot concept because I read what you wrote and I thought it was a wonderful way to describe retirement. Yeah. So one traditional definition of retirement is the disposition of an asset over its useful life. I say that again because it's a mouthful of words, a disposition of an asset over its useful life. That assumes that somebody's life is no longer useful. Mm. And I just refuse to believe that to be true. Somebody who's transitioning from full-time employment to another chapter of their life is, shouldn't retire. They should pivot. 
they should pivot into a chapter with purpose. And because they have wisdom, they have time, uh, hopefully they have money, and they have a responsibility to reach their hand down to the next generation and pull them up. But not just for the benefit of being altruistic and helping others, but the idea of having a purpose in the second chapter of life and living that out with your time and your money, both of them, it absolutely is critical because those that don't have a purpose, they die seven years sooner and cardiac arrest goes up astronomically after retirement. And so what we need to do as we pivot is start to think about our life purpose, usually held in the climax of our life story, and go do it. Do it within the community of people where you can give high fives and hugs because there's oxytocin involved in that and keeps us alive and keeps us healthy and have our wallets also follow us in this endeavor. So give to organizations, which also results in less depression and anxiety when we give. Studies have shown that over and over again. So when we pivot with intentionality into the next chapter of life, which could be 30 years and we do so well, we are happier and we live longer. And that's what it means to pivot. I love it. And it's funny because I do come across people who I've interviewed and will interview who have retired. And I call them an epic fail in retirement because they do so much. And I'm going to change and just call them to pivot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I believe that's so true. Thank you so much for that. Now, if there was something you could change in education, what would that be? I think we need to practice deferred gratification. Mm. And it's becoming such an issue now. You know, think about it. 20 years ago, we used to break a 20 to buy something. And today it's just swipe the debit cards or one click pay. In fact, you know, my kids, I have four kids and they hacked into my Amazon. Seven years. One of them was bound to do that. <laughs> right. And they bought slime. I do teach them about money. They just thought I just wanted slime. They just saw mom do it. And so they just bought it and, you know, buy now. And I get something shipped to my office. I go, what is this? And they say, well, I bought slime. I didn't buy slime. I got slime. Mm -hmm. And so we have one click pays. We have optical purchasing. We purchase with our watches. There's no friction. There's no delayed gratification. And this is a real problem for what really life is about. Because if you think about the essence of leadership, let's say you're a young employee and your first job out of college and you're 23, 24, and you work for somebody and that somebody is evaluating your leadership skills in different environments. And that evaluation process takes time. It takes, you know, a couple years to, you know, how committed is this person? How willing are they to improve? How is their communication skills? Are they responsible? Are they trustworthy? Can I count on? I mean, that process of evaluating somebody's effectiveness as a leader for a young employee, it's time. The disconnect is the young employee who just graduated college isn't willing to invest that extended period of time to be evaluated because they manufactured a desire for immediate gratification. And so if a young employee can be patient and avoid immediate gratification, and this is a great opportunity for young people, then they can just work on improvement, be patient, work on improvement, be patient, then their supervisor will see somebody who's willing to put in the time, effort, and is not focused on immediate gratification. Those young people who can be patient, those are the ones that'll be successful. The ones that get frustrated quickly and then jump from job to job to job to job, those are the ones that are going to have a hard time getting by in life. And so we need to practice deferred gratification. I get that. I have a 15-year-old. 
and I certainly see that with all his friends as well. But how could we teach that practicing deferred gratification? There's been a couple of studies in this space. In fact, there's a book called Succeed that talks about it. Uh, Sandy Halverston wrote that book, which is a great book. So she has some ways to do it. But the idea of teaching it, I think, is certainly rooted in something that we call the pause. And that's just pausing before we take action. And so training to implement a pause is really important. How to train, There's again, those academics are better than I am. But here's what I do know is implementing an effective training program creates new neural pathways because our brain is wired a certain way that we can change the pathways and that's called neuroplasticity. Right. And, and when we change the neural pathways and we create a pause in our decision making, then as a result, we have developed habits, which is that the basal ganglia is the part of the brain that's the habit forming part of the brain that we can change our brain to then say no or then pause. So how to do it, I may not be able to answer the question, but I do know it works. And I do know for adults, it can be done too. Here's a really good way. Anytime a decision is made, you have to create a filter for decision-making. And one of the filters that you might want to use is, did I ask a child, a friend, and a sage? And so when you're about to make a decision that's immediate gratification because you have got the dopamine burst going and you want to go, then you pause you say, you know, my filter for decision-making is to ask a child because if I ask a child, then I can take a complex topic and translate it in a simple way. Did I ask a friend, somebody who knows me, and then did I ask a sage, a wise person? You have now created a process in which you have moved from immediate gratification to rational decision-making. And as a result, you will make better decisions. So for adults, that process will take a little time and you'll move from emotional, irrational decisions to rational, logical decisions rooted in what's aligned with your long-term goals. Hmm. I can relate to that. A lot of purchases or things that you go online to get have strong connections to emotions. And so to put these filters in place is really important. And I can also see this being taught in high schools, behavioral finances, to help students to practice they just can't become something they don't practice. And just what you talked about, creating those new neural pathways. And our onus as educators, as leaders, is to help set them up to win. So this is something that perhaps maybe some of our listeners can pick up and take off with, right? It's a real need. And and I don't think anybody's really developed it well. In the school system, people come in as preconditioned to think about money certain ways and here's the problem is our conditions of how we treat money is based on what we've seen our parents do and uh, maybe what they have or haven't taught us here's the problem we become adults and we lean on these quasi truths so for example my truth might be you only live once right let's suppose that i'm an adult and i heard my parents say when they bought a car, hey, you only live once. And I heard them say that, and that became my mantra for decision-making, right? Right. By the way, that happens for all of us. We have to retrain ourselves and ask ourselves, what we learned from our parents probably wasn't the right thing because most of us are pretty messed up financially. So a part of that training that would be required in the education system is maybe unwinding some of the preconditions that people are leaning on and helping them reset the bar for making money decisions that are rational. Perfect. 
Thank you so much. Now, what have you read, watched, or listened to that our listeners should as well, and why? Love the book. I just finished it. Mike Mason, Practicing the Presence of People, and my pursuit just to be curious about people. By the way, I'm predisposed to be a very introverted person. Um, I'll be the first to leave the party. Uh, really? Yeah, it's just who I am and I'm okay with it. But one of the things I've been coached on is when I get that feeling, okay, I'm done to just stay. And so I'm, it's something I'm working on all the time is because, you know, it's not always easy for me or a lot of people to just be in the presence of people. It can be exhausting sometimes. Mm-hmm. Is it because you're so curious about people that you get into in-depth conversations and that can be exhausting? Yeah. You know, I think there's just heightened stimulus and with mm-hmm. a lot of people, yeah, it can be exhausting. You know, I really enjoy one-on-one conversations, but you know, when there's multiple people, multiple conversations, it's stimulus overload. The other book that I think people should digest is I'm a fan of Jim Collins' work. Mm-hmm. So anything that you can get from Jim Collins is certainly good stuff, good to great, great by choice. His language alone has become commonplace in the business community. This is just how business works and, you know, getting the right people in the right seat on the bus. You've heard some of those things. It's all from Jim Collins. So, mm-hmm. uh, Yeah, I've heard it in the education realm as well, many times. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's just good stuff. And so... Those are the two resources I would encourage people today. You ask me this six months from now, and I'm going to have two other things, but those are the two. <laughs> Great. Now, you have a lot of responsibilities, Daryl. What do you do on a daily basis to set your mind? Yeah, so every single morning, I have quiet time. I just mm-hmm. sit. And I'm practicing the presence of God. And I just reflect, and I pray, and I read my Bible. The other thing I do that's a little bit of an addiction is I probably drink five glasses of matcha green tea a day. <laughs> really? I love that stuff. I love matcha green tea. I drank a whole glass while we were Oh, it's healthy, isn't it? It's so healthy. It's Better got a coffee. good mix of juice to get you excited and calmness to keep you chill, somewhere in between. And I've just grown accustomed to enjoying it. I've got a lady that works with me and her mother's Japanese, and so she gets me the good stuff. Now I know where to get the good stuff. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? It certainly work out. I've always maintained that, you know, good balance for health. And so that's not a daily thing. It's usually two or three or four times a week, depending on the rhythm of my life. Having four kids, I'm always making sure that I'm committed to time with them. And so that's really important. Um, I get eight hours of sleep. I'm very committed to sleep. There was a book I read years ago called Power Sleep that just changed my attitude. I used to be committed to working out and I changed my priority that sleep was more important than working out. And so I still work out, but not to the extent I lose sleep. So I'm very focused on eight hours of sleep. That's what my body needs. All of those things are important. So thank you. Now, if you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? I would say, Daryl, you need to worry less. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I just worried and it was unnecessary. And so I wouldn't worry as much. And I'd hope I don't worry as much today. There's times, but it's not to the same degree that I used to. Everything's going to be okay. Now, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners that we haven't touched on? You know, I just think about this survey of 90-year-old women that they asked through Fast Company Magazine, and they asked them, if you could do anything different in life, what would you do different? And they said they would do three things different. They would take more risk. Mm. They would stop and smell the roses. And they would do something that would outlive them. And I can't help but think about that a lot and ask myself, am I doing those things? I don't want to live a life of regret. And so I would just encourage your listeners to wrestle with the results of that survey and hopefully it resonates with you. Is this something that your organization focuses on? 
Well, so we help people with their money. A lot of it is managing their money, helping them with planning and advice and financial guidance. And so everything that I talk about is a part of our culture. For example, whenever we give somebody hope, because in the midst of financial chaos, there's lack of hope. And so the hope could be paying off a mortgage. We have a gong in our office where we hit and the sound shatters the office and everyone celebrates and claps. We record those opportunities to give hope every single day. And so we engulf our organizations in these principles. We monitor our results and we celebrate them. And so, yes, it's a key part of our organization. I love it. Take more risks, stop and smell the roses and do something that outlives us. That's right. Great way to end. Thank you so much, Daryl, for adding value to me and to our listeners. Thank you. I hope it helped. It sure did. All right. Take care. Have a great day. Thank you for having me. Honored. Bye-bye. Bye. Hello, leaders. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.